ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Joshua Karima is a barrister. He specialises in human rights and native title cases. Josh is a one-year Kalkadoon man, one of only a handful of First Nation barristers in Australia. A few years ago, Josh had the honour of being part of the ceremony where his mum, Sandra Creamer, was also admitted as a lawyer into Queensland's Supreme Court. Both Josh and his mum have gone through more than most on the way to realise their ambitions. And a heads up, Josh's story includes domestic violence and suicide. It was following a recent family tragedy that Josh knew he himself was close to falling apart. So he set off to take stock all the way to Mount Everest. Hi, Josh. How are you, Sarah? Very well. It's lovely to have you on the program. As I say, you're a Wanyi and Kalkadoon man. What part of the country do you belong to? Kalkadoon country is around Mount Isa, and that's where I grew up. And the Wanyi country is around the Gulf of Carpentaria, and in particular, Lawn Hill near Doomage is an important place for my family. And when you close your eyes and think about what that part of Australia looks like, what comes to mind? Those rocky hills around Mount Isa, and sometimes it's quite dry and arid, and there's some really magical water holes. There's a little place called Spring Creek where my mother used to take us swimming out past the airport. That's one. Uh, there's Lake Mundara out there, but uh, there's a nice water hole on the way to Cloncurry too. I get swimming, and I swear the place put a curse on me when I was there. But uh, what do you mean? Oh, just it, it just really imbued some magical feelings in you while you were there, and and it's a place that you can't forget. I still get to travel to Mount Isa quite regularly and um, it's a beautiful country and it's just a special part of the world. This is where your mum's people are from. What do you know about her early life, Josh? My mother had a had a really tough life. Yeah, um, she was the youngest of 12, so we have a big family and in Mount Isa we are literally related to everybody. But uh, she was the youngest of 12 and her mother passed away when my mum would have been about six months old from cancer. So she was raised by one of her older sisters and a few of her aunties and uncles and my grandfather. uh, He was a cook out on uh, stations, cattle stations. And so he'd be out working and then the family, the kids would look after themselves and they had the aunties and uncles around. And and that was my mother's life uh, as a young child growing up. You spent your early life, your early years in Mount Isa. What are your memories of, of what things were like at home when you were a kid there? it's tough that in a lot of times you can only remember the really tough and difficult occasions. And my stepfather and my mother were living in a domestic and family violent relationship. And I was only young. I was only uh, primary school when I left Mount Isa, started grade eight. And so the most I remember is really the physical violence. You know, if you look back today, you'd probably say, well, there's coercive control and there's other elements to it. But, you know, I remember my mother, she was She's only small. She's probably 45 kilos, uh, about half the size of me. And my stepfather's a big man. And I remember her being up against the wall and you know, being physically assaulted by him. And and that was tough as a kid. Uh, we I also copped it too, I think, as the oldest. And I got hit a few times. And um, that was the that was the circumstance in which we lived under. It was a tough, tough environment for all of us. What do you remember about the lead up to your mum's decision to leave and, and take your kids away from that? I mean, it must have been really tough for her. I remember getting married and I was set at my wedding day. I'm 30 years old and my mother was this age and she left with three kids in, in Mount Isa. We moved to, to Yapoon in central Queensland. 
Yapoon's a, a little town on the coast of central Queensland. How different was it to Mount Isa? It couldn't be any more different. You got you, you've got northwest Queensland, Stockman and his cattle stations, all these you know, indigenous young fellas running around. Uh, and then you move to Yapoon, and I, when I first got there, I thought, well, is this a retirement village? <laughs> I didn't see any black people, firstly. Didn't see anyone under uh, 16. No, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on here? So, yeah, there's a general de- demographic, which is different, but, I mean, it's a beautiful coastline, and that Capricorn Coast part of Australia is something really special, and and that you know, that became our home. My mother sort of worked our way up. We met people. We had, you know, we developed friendships, and... And that served us really well in those early stages. What state was your your mum in, though, Josh, in those early months of coming out of such a damaging relationship? Look, I think that all of us had PTSD, and to tell you the truth, I think we all still have it to some level, uh, PTSD from that time. And I know, I know it took a long time, and I don't know if my mother's ever fully recovered, but I know it took a number of years for her to even just be able to function on a normal level. I was the oldest. I was probably about 12 or 13 and my younger sister was maybe 11 years old and then my other brother, he was about eight and my other brother was born later. But uh, I remember we were living in a house together in Yapoon and we were just like shadows. You know, I, I sort of thought at the time just thinking we're almost like roommates in that, you know, there's not much of a bond to bring us together. We barely sort of communicate with each other. We're we are individually self-sufficient uh, and I think my siblings, the oldest of us, all felt like we've raised ourselves from an early age. And, you know, whilst my mother was present you know, in a physical sense, uh, it, we developed our own identities and independence really early and that was tough and I just remember thinking, you know, there's a group of shadows walking around here in the house. We, we're barely existing in a, in, a, in a sense, you know, that sense you feel in your heart, that having a really strong soul and and an identity and just being really emotionally stable and comfortable. We didn't have that as kids. I'm imagining you, you would have carried a lot of that fear with you too, although you weren't living with this violent man. That's what you'd grown up expecting. It, it must have not been easy to get used to the fact that you weren't under threat in the same way. There was that. But I think the hardest thing was actually being thrust into the role as thinking you're a father at 12 and 13 years old. And I think back now and I'm you know, and I, I tried to play that role and, you know, to be supportive of my mother and help my younger siblings and, you know, I would have made so many mistakes. I did make so many mistakes. But that that is the toughest thing, I think, actually being thrust into that position and then having that responsibility and, and that's something I had, you know, as a 12, 13-year-old. How tough were things financially at that point? Oh, look, we didn't have any money. Um, my mother still hasn't really ever had much interest in money and accumulating wealth or property. You know, it'd be a struggle to keep the electricity on. Um, we'd, we'd, the phone would be turned off a few times. I remember going down to the um, phone box. that I must have been a teenager and trying to get the phone hooked up in my name. So, I mean, that was just part and parcel of it. It's, it's it, You didn't really need money to, to do things and and that was really the circumstance. Um, it was tough on my mother, but you know, it was tough on us kids, but it was what it is. When you were a teenager, your brother Robson was born. How did the house change once this little baby arrived? Yeah, Robson was really special. So he was born in he was born in Yapoon. I was 15 years old, so I was in grade 10 actually at the time, getting close to grade 11. 
And um, he came along and I think for the first time he, we were allowed to have some emotion. We were actually allowed to love something and care for something and we did. You know, I know my sister and I, something we talk about really fondly and, uh, you know, I was like a father to him. My sister was like a mother to him uh, from those uh, teenage years. And that was just something really special. I think it, for the, it took us out of that space we had been for a number of years and for the first time we'd had some warmth and emotion and caring in the house and that's not something that is familiar or common for us and and that's what he brought. He brought a real ray of sunshine to our lives. What about life outside of the family, Josh? What was school like for you? Look, I was really lucky. Mum was always insistent on getting us a good education and the Christian brothers in Nippoon let me go to school there and she was able to pay it off. And, you know, my, I don't think it's difficult because, you know, you go to these high schools and the teachers really never understand your history and the experience you're going through. And, and you know, they expect you to sit there and conform and to do all those things. And for the most part I did, but I never, never had much of a focus on, you know, academia and, and those things. And um, I was grade 10, I started working after school in a butcher shop. And, and that was really a big change for me, actually, because first it gave me a little bit of money, which I could help out at home, gave me some additional responsibility. But it also gave me an identity outside of the family and outside of being a school kid. And so, you know, instead of you know, dressing up in your school uniform or being at home and having the, the ex- expectations on you, I was you know, working with a group of men in a butcher shop. And I was just doing my own thing. It was actually really a really uh, fundamental change in sort of the, my early years as a young kid. And did you think back then that might be your future, <clears throat> that you'd finish your apprenticeship as a butcher and, and take that on as a, as a job? Certainly uh, um, the school asked me to leave in grade 10. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> Can you tell me why? Uh, well, they said you've got a job at the butcher shop, you should leave and not come back. And uh, it, it wasn't you know, it wasn't like I was in trouble all the time. I just think they thought it was a better fit for me being an Indigenous boy. And But, uh, you know, I, I did think I'd go on and complete an apprenticeship. And after three years working there, grade 10, 11 and 12 after school, I did start an apprenticeship after that. And I always say it's one of those jobs where... The job was available for six weeks while the apprentice was at TAFE in Brisbane and six years later I left the place. <laughs> Are you still in charge of the barbecues and, and meat cutting at your home? Oh, I can still pick a good steak, I can tell you that. <laughs> so how did you go from working in a, in a butcher shop in Yapoon to studying law? It's it's interesting when you grow up in a regional area and there's very few opportunities. And I always think that the, the ones who get ahead are the people who take whatever opportunities that came up. I didn't think I'd be a butcher forever, but I knew there was a job when I was young and that $62.50 I was earning a week would make a big difference at home. And then after I finished, then I, you know, I understood an apprenticeship was available and something I wanted to do. I agreed to do it and if I make a commitment, I'll stick to it. But I knew early on in my apprenticeship I wouldn't stay there forever and I was looking at, I always had this interest in politics and social justice and law and you know, all these issues which my mates going to school were more concerned about footy and those types of things. So there was a whole world out there I wanted to explore and I knew once I got through my trade, I'd go out and do that. And actually, I wanted to go and work in the mines because uh, Century Zinc is one of, was then one of the biggest zinc mines in the world out on Wanyi country. And I thought I'd go and work in the mines because all my family had worked in the mines and I actually wrote a letter to the Indigenous employer out there, but I didn't hear back from him. My girlfriend at the time was going to uni on the Gold Coast and I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. So that's where I ended up. You did take some time off to go and work out 
in the mines. What was that like? Yeah, well, I've got mining in the blood and I did want to give it a try, Sarah, that um, it's something, you know, I grew up with it and some, being in Mount Isa, it is a mining town. Well, I guess it's a mine with a small town next to it. But I, I went out and I worked underground in coal mines for about six months and um, it was, I, I thought about it in the context, if I never finish uni, then this is probably the best, highest paying job I could get. And I went out there and I realised pretty quickly, get me back on the books. So, <laughs> What's well, a bit easier, is it, studying law than working underground? L- look, I, you know, I end up working by myself on the belts and you're literally underground by yourself 10, 12 hours a day, you don't see anyone. And um, But there's also, I like the intellectual challenge, you know, and that, that really, uh, I wasn't getting that, but also the work wasn't particularly personally rewarding. And I, I, I had had a glimpse of law school and I had had a glimpse of what the legal profession looked like and I th- thought I'm a, probably a better fit than I am a coal miner. When did you first become aware of Kara, the woman who would become your wife eventually? Yeah, well, that was back in Yapoon as well. So I was doing my apprenticeship then and I, at various times in my life I've had a photographic memory but now I've sort of read too much stuff on the news and I just clocks up my brain. But I remember reading an article about Kara and, and Yapoon is a bit like the old Sea Change show. Beautiful little coastal town, you know, Mayor Bob Jelly, all this sort of stuff. And Yapoon would have a um, pineapple fest every year. <laughs> so, oh, look, it's big because we have our parades and, and we have the pineapple queens. And Cara was an entrant. So she was about 17, 18 years old and she was an entrant. I think she might have been 17. And I was sitting in the butcher shop. I remember sitting out the chair on this big stainless steel table and reading the local free paper, which was the Mirror at the time, and Cara was being profiled as an entrant. And what stuck in my mind was she wanted to be a lawyer in the Navy. And by that time, I obviously thought I wanted to study law as well. So that was my exposure to her. And was that the only thing that stuck in your mind, Josh? Uh, oh, yeah, look, it really was actually. Um, I mean, Cara was going to, I think, the all-girls school at the time, and uh, but that it just stuck out. And I remember having a conversation with my boss about it, about her wanting to be a lawyer in the Navy. And um, fast forward four years, so I don't see this girl, talk to her, fast forward four years, I'm back in Yapoon and I see her out one night and I go and talk to her and I say, do you still want to be a lawyer in the Navy? Get out. And I start, and I'm studying law by then. So oh, it's smooth cream up. That's how it all <laughs> happens, right? <laughs> was she taken aback? She was. She thought probably, uh, she probably thought a range of things. Um, <laughs> but coincidentally then, she gets home that night and says, yeah, I do want to be a lawyer in the Navy to herself, enrolls in law school and starts at JCU a couple of weeks later. Wow. Mm. So might have felt like it was fated to be the two of you, do you think? Yeah, well, we've been together 20 years now, so there's something that, uh, yeah, it was pretty special. And, you know, growing up in a small town again, I mean, she's a superstar and to have met a woman like her in Yapoon and seeing what she's achieved is pretty special. Did she win Miss Pineapple? No. no. Um, a little bit of controversy around that. She says she was robbed. She, yeah, yeah, she was robbed. She was the youngest entrant, but but she, I think she raised. She was the fundraising um, queen instead of the actual pineapple queen. But look, I think that still has a few issues. So maybe when they do a golden oldies one in about ten years, <laughs> she that. can run for that. <laughs> you have three young kids together. How does that, uh, the responsibilities of that, fit in with your life as as a lawyer? I'm busy as a lawyer and I, I travel across the country working on the stolen wages and stolen generation and the Palm Island case and all these big cases. But my life, I think, and my busyness is really nowhere near Cara. She's 
She's done extraordinary things. She's worked at uh, Women's Legal Service. She started the first domestic violence law firm in Australia. She's been a, a local politician for five or six years, um, and now she started working in a not-for-profit legal centre. But, you know, we've both been busy, and I think one of the things is we both make a contribution at home. Uh, and at the moment, we don't do it with any nannies or anything like that either. So, no, when you really find a good partner in life, you understand it's those values that keep you together, bring you together and keep you together. And family's important for both of us. And also trying to ensure that both of us can you know, achieve our career aspirations. And so we contribute where we can at home to make it happen. What are you teaching your kids, Josh, about their Aboriginal heritage? Well, it's funny. I mean, I not only have to teach my kids, I go into the daycare and I teach them and I go to the schools and I teach them. And no, I, I think the one defining factor that really helped me along was having a strong sense of your own identity. And, you know, there's a lot of cultural mix in our house. Um, Cara's mother's Lebanese and, you know, my father's from the West Indies and back on the Aboriginal side, we've got the Chinese that come in from the gold rush as well. But Certainly being Indigenous is front and centre and, and I I talk to my kids about things like stolen generations, stolen wages in a child-focused way so they you know, they understand the history and my daughter Eden, who's the oldest, has really picked up on that. But uh, it's important for them, I think, to know their history and have a strong sense of their identity and that's what we try and do. You know, I think about what you described about what life was like at home for you growing up. You didn't have a dad that you can take as a role model. How have you created the kind of father that you want to be to your own kids, given that you didn't have a first-hand experience of that? Yeah, I know that when I was uh, in the early stages of my career, I did look for people who'd be good role models. And even as a butcher, I think my boss, um, Peter Morton, was a great role model. And he was a father figure. And I started working for him when I was you know, 13, 14 years old, so he was really important. And, and I was, as I started in law, people like Chris and I, I was able to work for Chris, and, and I did look for that. But um, Cara's mother and father, they've been together for a long time, and you know, they've got three kids, and I think her, her father, is, um, he's probably been the one rock out of everybody who's always been there and reliable and he never gets worried about things. He's got a really, really great temperament, actually, and I get... And I, probably spent more time with him than any other male over the last two decades. So, you know, that's something. But it's a challenge. It's not, uh, you know, I don't find it easy being a father. You know, I don't have a lot of tolerance for kids screaming and jumping around and fighting all the time. And and you do have to take a step back. I certainly do have to take a step back every now and then. And um, it's, a, it's a hard journey. But I always think kids are born perfect and their parents stuff them up. And so, you know, I, I just don't want to do that to my kids. You've mentioned that a lot of the work that you do as a barrister was on stolen wages. Yeah, I've worked on the stolen wages in Queensland. I'm still working on stolen wages, WA and Northern Territory. But in, in across all jurisdictions, so all states and territories, there was a, laws in place from the early 1900s right up into the 1970s where Aboriginal people worked. In Queensland, they worked. Um, they were sent down to different private employers on cattle stations or women as domestics. And rather than their wage being paid to them directly, their wages were paid to government, and government kept those wages. In the Territory in WA, it's more akin to slavery. Um, people just would walk out of the desert in the 60s and 70s and before that, and they'd go and work on a cattle station for 10 years for uh, rations, salt, uh, flour, sugar, tea, tobacco. 
But I've had a real privilege over the last seven years, I think, working on those matters. And I just say my job is always, I just travel around Australia and I get to talk to elders. And I've learned so much of our history that it's, I hope as this country moves to truth-telling that everybody starts to understand, but there's so, so many powerful stories and identities and just a strength and resilience that comes from my history that even young Indigenous kids running around today don't know. And uh, I've, I've probably met with thousands, but I know I've conducted um, hundreds of interviews that I've recorded, whether it's people up in the Kimberleys or people uh, around, uh, you know, Alice Springs out in that area or people up in um, the Gulf here in Queensland. I've sat down and I've understood their experiences. What are some of the stories that have really struck you when you've sat down with, with elders in those settings? Uh, the brutality of the regime and, you know, there was an incident in Western Australia on one of the government-run missions where as part of the um, treatment of people, they, they rigged up a battery and they'd electrocute the men on the genitals after they'd dress them up in dresses as part of the punishment. And they knew all about it and you read all the documents and say, yeah, we know, but we need to have the mechanic there so we're not going to remove him. Uh, but the other part uh, too, I think, which really affected me was um, the, the way that women are treated. Uh, you know, a lot of assaults, a lot of rapes, sexual assaults. And I just, through my own sort of um, interviews and understanding, had thought during those, that period, that probably 100 years, maybe 80% of women would have been affected by that type of conduct. And so that, um, you know, that always sticks with you because you're sitting down with someone and it just comes out of the blue. They just mention it and... Um, uh, and it's tough, but, uh, you know, the, I think the other part of it is is understanding that you know, Aboriginal people worked. They worked 14 hours a day, sometimes 52 weeks a year, and they contributed to the development of this country and our nation and the pastoral industry. They supported um, non-Indigenous women in their homes as domestic cleaners and nursemaids and things, and and all that history out there is just, uh, it's been forgotten or chosen to be ignored. That's the That's the challenge for us going forward. As an Indigenous barrister, and there are still only a handful of First Nation barristers in this country, how heavy does the responsibility of of telling those stories and seeking justice, how heavily does it sit on your shoulders? Yeah, I think about my role or my generation in this context and understanding you know, the, the law and how it's affected Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people as well, that... I think those first generations were really powerless. They lacked any control over their circumstances and and then they all they could do was strike. And so the 50s, 60s and 70s and even before that you had people, they had no influence over their um, circumstances but to sit down. That's it. Uh, the next generation I think about, their children are probably the marchers. They're the ones marching here through the streets in the 80s against Peter and others. And my generation, I think, were the influencers. So... The ultimate thing is trying to um, influence the people that you know, make the decisions about us. And because of my role, I, you know, not only do I learn the stories of the people who've experienced it and get to share that, but you know, I get access to the politicians and the judges and the CEOs and the people who make decisions. And, and I want to influence their decision making. And I see that as my contribution to tell those stories, to, to share those stories. And the next generation, my children's generation, well, I hope they are the decision makers so you you don't need the influences then. How strange a contrast can it be going from meeting people out in communities in different parts of remote WA or Northern Territory or Queensland and then coming back to your home and your family set up? Sometimes when I'm away for a long time and you've got to understand that um, sometimes you're interviewing people who are living in a shed 
you know, they might have worked for 20 years on a station and never earned a cent. They live in a shed with no running water, not much bigger than the studio we're in, and actually sometimes half this studio. Uh, no running water, no electricity, and, uh, you know, I don't, they don't know where their next meal's coming from. And I come back to Brisbane and I'm, I'm in sort of living close to the city in a beautiful house that my wife and I built a few years ago in a world which is so far removed from that. It, it's hard to really reconcile the two. And I come home and, you know, I'm taking my kids to school or sport and I'm talking to the other parents and I'm just like, is this, is this my reality? Or is my reality out on the road up at Fitzroy Crossing or up at uh, Yundamu or all these places, these remote places that people, particularly the Aboriginal communities that people don't get to, you know, you sort of think, how can those two worlds exist at the same time? And for most of us, we never get exposed to that and we judge others by our own circumstances, but I see all of it and I see the struggles of people and I see what they've done. They've made a really significant contribution, but we've just left them out there to... To, I call them the forgotten Australians, to, to be forgotten. There are very few Indigenous barristers doing the, the kind of work you do and even fewer First Nation women. How are you and, and Cara trying to change that? So it's a Joshua Creamer and Cara Cook Excellence in Law Award and we've partnered with Griffith University to do it. And it's for Indigenous female lawyers towards the end of their law degree with an aspiration of going to the bar. And we set that up about two years ago now when I turned 40 and we committed to give financial support. We also mentor and um, support them into the workplace. It came about because I was working on these matters thinking, I need an Indigenous woman sitting here next to me, an Indigenous barrister equal to me, if not better, to be able to interview women and, and to play a lead role in these cases. Like I saw the need for it on the front line and I wanted to do something about it. There's only about 20 or so, maybe even a bit less Indigenous barristers out there. It's such a small pool. And so in that short period of time, we've had two amazing um, participants come through that program who I know are going to go and change the world and uh, we're, we're sort of looking forward to what they achieve. Podcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Josh is one of only a handful of Indigenous barristers in Australia, and he also made history by formally moving the admission of his mother, Sandra, as a lawyer to the Supreme Court in Queensland. What was that day like, Josh? Law's got really religious overtones, and, you know, that's not... um, It's got its own language, its own culture, and I don't often... I don't get nervous in court. I feel like, well, that's my job, but I got nervous that day. I don't think I even dressed myself properly. I had my wig on and my robes. Wig on backwards. Yeah, my jabbo was sticking out, and I was like, oh, anyway. Um, And it was during COVID, and I think it was the first time they'd had a face-to-face swearing in for admission for a a while, and... um, and it wasn't easy to get admitted. And in much like a religious ceremony, you have to tell them all your sins. 
and ultimately the judges agree whether or not you should be forgiven. That, that's the over, that's the religious overtone of it. And you know, Mum had written lots of affidavits and talked about her experience and all this. And so it took her a while actually to get approved to be admitted. And then I remember saying to her, I was like, Mum, if you don't get it this time, we probably have to uh, think about that's it and maybe do something else. So to go through all that study and not be a lawyer it would be pretty um, heartbreaking. But we were there in the ceremony and I must have been one of the first up and I get up and I, you know, say, oh, Sandra Creamer, my mother, she's done all the right things. She complied with all the obligations. And the three judges, you know, they turn and look at each other and they say, let her be admitted. Very much like your sins being forgiven. <laughs> and I sat down and I was, I was relieved and I was proud, but also to like, to understand what she's endured, you know, the hardships. And my mother didn't have a lot of wins in her life to, to actually have got to that achievement and to now be able to say you're a lawyer and to practice, very special moment for her and, and for the family, my immediate family, but you know, my whole family as well, her, her siblings and aunties and uncles too. So they've been, you know, with your story and your mum's story, these really positive outcomes for your family, but that's not the whole story. Mm. As you got older, <clears throat> what was your relationship like with your youngest brother, with, with Robson? Did you stay close? Yeah, well, it was tough because my mother and his father were in a domestic violence relationship as well, right? So the two main relationships, which probably took 25 years of her life, were a lot of domestic violence. And I don't, I still don't think I know all of it, but that relationship came to an end. But, you know, Robson and, I mean, we had a, people thought he was my son, right? I'm 15 years older than him. As he's four or five years old, I'm 20, I'm, you know, I'm a butcher, I'm working in Yapoon. I'm walking around, this kid's always there next next to me and my girlfriend at the time. And and so he he was my son in a lot of ways. You know, I had that um, connection with him. And it was tough, you know, as he grew, grew older. And I think, I, I, I guess in some ways I started to drift away. I, you know, started my own family and I was doing things down here. And I didn't sort of have that same level of connection and time for him, um, unfortunately. But... It was hard too because um, he, I think he saw me, he saw my mother, he saw Cara and said, like, oh, well, he he felt a lot of pressure to go out and be something and to do something that probably wasn't a right fit for him. And and so I saw how that relationship changed and how he changed over his life. But um, probably around the age of 15, he started to have some mental health issues, being subject to the you know, the, the trauma from the DV and the, the mental health. And I remember he was... Um, he was 15 years old and the school sent him down. He was at boarding school and in Cairns and um, he uh, he got sent down to me on suicide watch. And I, I just said to the school at times, like, well, could you have told us beforehand? Um, I mean, he had to come down and, he, I mean, he's better off in Brisbane with me. It was only a short time, but I, I just remember the school hadn't said anything beforehand and then I get this call, he's coming down and, subsequent discussions with the school and I'm like, well, you should have probably told us this, but it's a real challenge, mental health. And, you know, if, if anyone who's close to it and you've got a family member, you, you feel, and I still feel very powerless about it because as a mental health patient, you've got all the confidentiality attached to it. And I remember asking his doctor at 15, it's like, well, what's going on? Like, well, I can't tell you. And you sort of think, well, what can I actually do? I, you know, unless they're going to sit down and tell you what is happening with them, which Robson never did. Mm-hmm. You know, all the mental health campaigns, I think, are focused on people who are experiencing it. But there's a lot of us sitting there observing it, saying, how can we help? But I often feel pretty powerless. And 
And, you know, it came in, it came in at certain points, but even up until the end of last year, Robson became a barber and if he walked into his barber shop and, you know, he's got a, he had a beautiful son and um, he was living his life, you wouldn't know. Um, but sometimes a switch would just turn on him and, and he'd be completely different. And uh, for us as a family, I guess that was a side I got to see a bit more towards the end. What happened at, at Christmas time <coughs> just last year, Josh, when you went back up to spend time with your family at Yapoon? So there'd probably been a build-up, a 12-month build-up, actually, because um, the Christmas prior, his um, his partner didn't come around to my mother's house, him and his partner. And that was really strange because uh, Rebecca's an amazing young girl. She's studying law as well, and she's the mother of his uh, child who's three years old. And um, uh, she didn't come around, and I just thought, this is really strange. I ended up contacting her, and she said, look, we had a big argument. I had to call the police, and I've left, and I've gone down to my mother's house and and I think that was another, that was, a, I guess, a trigger in some way for, for me that um, having seen what my mother went through, the fact that someone, you know, my brother could put his wife through some sort of level of misery, whatever that was, really sort of turned me away from him and turned me more towards her. But that was really the lead up in the 12 months and then we'd had a we just hadn't had much um, conversation or talk, but I would check in with Rebecca to see how everyone's going and occasionally Robson and I would have a chat to each other. And you've got to contrast with that, you know, us growing up. But then uh, Christmas 2022, my mother got us all together and it was interesting in that it wasn't really a, it wasn't a nice Christmas. Usually we all get together and we have a nice time, but it just felt really strained. And... Um, you know, I remember the last thing we sort of did that day was the kids had a big water fight and we got into it yeah, and we were doing that as well. And the four of us there and my sister's a foster mother so she's got seven kids and I've got three kids and we usually make a big event of it. But it just wasn't um, a normal Christmas. That was a bit, um, bit strained. But next morning I wake up and I, it's Boxing Day so I take the kids to um, the cinema in Yapoon. I'm in the cinema and uh, went and seen that Lyle Lyle Crocodile. I'll never forget that. And we walk out and I have a, it's 1.30 when I walk out and I look and I have three missed calls from Rebecca and, I, and it's just saying help. I, I just remember feeling this sort of rush of emotion. I, I, I've never received a text like that. Like I say, Cara's worked in domestic violence and I remember her getting calls at nine, ten o'clock at night that women were fleeing their homes. But I certainly hadn't experienced that. But um, Robson and Rebecca had been in an argument but my sister was there, which is good because um, she's probably the most calm and coolest and sensible out of all of us. She always has been. And she was talking to Robson in the car and Rebecca was inside with my sister Tamara and her partners, Katie, was inside with Rebecca. And I, I just stormed in. I parked the car so the kids couldn't see what was going on. I didn't want them to see that. But I stormed in and I was like, that's it. This relationship's over. And I started packing up Rebecca's stuff and I just, you know, just said, oh, I hate the way you treat this girl, you know. Um, and I said to him, I was like, you ever touch her, I'll kill you. And, um, you know, I guess in that instance I felt like I was probably protecting my mum. You know, as a little boy you grow up, you see these things, there's not much you can do. But when you're an adult and you're in that situation, it's like, well, you know what, no one's going to hurt this woman. Um, I don't care who it is. And so I pack up the stuff and um, and I take her to my place because I, I had a place in Yapoon. It's literally right behind my mother's house. So kids are at mum's, um, car is home, she's talking to Rebecca and she's making a plan, right? I mean, you know, women have these plans that 
well, you want to leave a relationship, Cara's putting a plan together on the spot. And um, my sister's like, no, I'm going to stay with him. I'm a bit worried about him. I'm like, yeah, okay. And I'm sitting at my mother's, or 10 or 15 minutes, I'm sitting at my mother's and my mother gets a call. And I just remember, like, I looked at her face and it just shattered into a thousand pieces. And she couldn't actually say the words, but she said, Robson's dead. Like, I could just hear a slight sound, but I could see her face, her lips moving. So I knew exactly what she said. And I just, we had all the kids at mum's and I was like, like, get out, you kids, go and come, like... Car take all these kids because there was just there's lots of them, all these little cousins, you know, under the age of five or six. And um, she takes the kids, and I just hammer, I just get in the car, and I hammer out to um, where they are, which is about ten minutes away from my mother's place on the Capricorn Coast Highway. And um, you get there, and you know, this is a two story house, and I remember seeing. So there was one ambulance bus there, but my sister's just leaning up against one of the the sort of pylons or the um, uh, and she's just like, she is just crying, howling. Like you, you, you never forget that image, right? She's just sitting there. She's, um, she's out. And I walk over because it's actually just behind the fence, actually, um, where she found him, right? So she finds him. Um, she has to keep him, try and keep him going for the ambulance till the ambulance arrive. And I walk over and there's these two ambos there and it's just behind the front fence so you can't really see what's going on, which is good from the street. And I say, I think I said, what's going on or what's happening or how is he? And um, the ambos said, oh, who are you? I said, I'm his oldest brother. And they said, I think they said he's in cardiac arrest or going in cardiac arrest. But the words and the way that I said it, they said it, and probably from what my mother had said to me, I had thought he was dead. I didn't think I, I didn't think there's any possibility. Right from the start, I never thought there's any possibility he's coming back. So they're, we're there, and it's just me and my sister, right? Because you, you, you're not having your mother come out and see that stuff, and it's something you do not want to happen. Another ambulance bus comes along, and there's four of them, and then there's another amber. I think there's five of them, more senior person. He goes and talks to my sister, and I said, mate, look, I'm... I'm the oldest, I'm a lawyer, you, you talk to me. And so he starts directing things to me. And there were a couple of police as well. And so the police get there and, you know, they start questioning. And I just went into lawyer mode. You know, it's it's funny how you can, you're so well trained, right? And I'm just walking through this, okay, so what happened? And I start walking through the facts. Well, at 1.15, I got this text. I didn't see it till 1.30. At 1.45, I was at my mother's, you know, just walking through the day this happened and then um, in a very chronological and factual way in the same way you put a statement together. And I remember the police officer, I went through this uh, and I remember him saying, oh, well, that was good, can you go through it again? And I looked at him and I was like, and I looked at his body camera and I thought maybe he's doing it as a distraction or keeping me calm or whatever, but I, I did, I went through it again. And at the same time, every now and then, Danbo, the more senior one, is coming up and letting me know what's happening. And he would have came up and I think he'd came up twice and then the third time he might have said, look, we're just going to, we've got, basically, look, we've done the best we can. We'll give it a bit more of a shot, but um, there's not much else we can do. And then a short time later he comes up and he says, look, you know, we've done our best. And But I'd had this belief that it wasn't, things weren't, you know, he was dead and that's what I had thought and that's what happened. And I remember when they, the ambulance called it, they... Um, they came up to me, these, the two who were there from the start, they're only young guys. 
And they come up and they were so apologetic and sympathetic and just so comforting in that moment. And I didn't, I didn't feel like they owed me that at all. I didn't, they didn't even have to say anything to me, but they, I know they would have done the best they could. And, you know, they were there, they were pumping away for 45 minutes trying to get this kid going, you know, and, um, they came up and I was just so grateful for the way they had respected me and him and my sister and, you know, they, what they were showing us. And I was grateful to the police. The police officers, I'm a fairly big guy, I'm probably 6'2 and, you know, fair size and he was a bit bigger and stronger and, you know, he was like, if I needed a, I didn't, I wasn't crying then, but if I needed a shoulder to cry on, this guy was the right guy for me at the time and as were the Ambos. I'm so sorry about the the loss of your brother. You you say how you went almost automatically into that lawyer mode, which was practically, I'm sure, really useful at that time. How long did it take till that crumpled a bit and the the emotion of what had happened hit you as a as a brother, not as a lawyer? So he's there. My brother's there for the next four hours on the ground, and. Um, my sister's there and my sister is always just so staunch and determined. She's like, I'm not leaving. I said, I'm, I want to go, so I'm not leaving him. So I am not leaving until they take him. And I was like, oh, man. And so I jumped in the car. I think I go and tell my other brother. Or, anyway, and I was coming back to where we were and I had a friend who was staying close, a really good friend who I'd you know, been to school with since we were grade 10 and just done a lot of stuff over the years and I knew he was staying down the road for Christmas. And I called him, Joel Ryan he is, and the Ryan family is always, in my family, you know, there's a lot of kids and we've got a few kids and so we're really close as, as two families I think the kids are. And he's, you know, he's out in the mines now. He's probably been out in the mines 20 years. He's a big guy, like, and they're all big, these miners. And I call him and he's, I told him what happened. He said, mate, I'm coming. I'll come down to you. And we were so close we could walk to each other. And I remember um, I was walking towards him and I just, I was a few metres out and I just, that was it. I just, the emotion came on and he put his arms out. He's a massive guy. He put his arms out around me and he just gave me this huge hug. And, um, you know, I just cried in his shoulders. I think that was probably the first time I did. Uh, and... Um, he, he was just there, right? He just sat there with me and my sister. He ended up taking my car and running my brother around and came back and he then, you know, he stayed with us until, because you have, you know, the initial incident and then you have forensics come out and then you have the coroner come out and all the, you know, the, they come and pick up the body, the um, funeral home. They come out and so it's not until the funeral home comes out and gets his body that they, they can take him away. So, you know, Joel sat with us there for a couple of hours and um, until his body was taken away. It's still only such a, a recent thing that's happened in your family, Josh, but how's your mum doing so far? Oh, look, it's devastated all of us. Um, it, it's had a huge consequence. My mother was at the point now where... Over the last 20 years, she's probably spent three to six months of the year travelling around um, the world doing international human rights matters. And my, a friend of mine went over to the UN with her and said that they actually call her Mrs UN over there um, because when the Indigenous Permanent Forum's sitting, she knows everybody and she's been to all parts of the world. But I remember going, I remember, so the police give us his stuff, I think he had some thongs on and a phone. 
And I had his phone. I was taking it back to my mum's. This is after we all finished. And she's calling the phone, right? She knows he's gone. I think maybe she just wants to hear his voice or she wants to check he's still alive. And you know that Aboriginal women, when, they, when they're really emotional, they do that wailing. It's really deep. It, it gets you in your soul. As I pulled up at her house, I could just hear that and um, I couldn't say anything. I just walked in. I dropped his things on a table and I just walked out. And I, my, like I say, I got a house down the back and um, the next street over and I could hear her crying through the night. But it, it's had a fundamental shift on her and um, and me, actually. You know, I, Car and I, we, we, we've got this approach. We're not just getting out of bed and throwing our arms over and going to work. Like, we're getting out of bed and we want to make a difference in the world, you know. We want to contribute. And that's how we've lived our life for a long time. And I was just, I was shattered. I remember the, that night, it was almost like this nuclear bomb had gone off in my brain. It was just the senses, I can never describe it, this huge amount of energy was just rushing through my head. And I didn't sleep that night. But all these, you know, brain was tingling, all these things happening and I, this, this bomb and, and um, it, was, it was just earth shattering. And so... Um, for my mother, I mean, I think she still goes to his grave every day. That's sort of where she is at. It's hard for her to let go. And she will always blame herself. And I said to her in the days that followed, it might have been even the next day, I just said, it's not your fault. I didn't want her to feel any blame, but she will always blame herself. And I think that will be the challenge for her. What about you, Josh? Do you feel a sense of guilt even if logically you know that's not the case you know it's it's i look i certainly do and i i wouldn't deny that and i've been through grief and i look i had an auntie die recently in the last couple of weeks and that was actually comforting to experience grief in its normal form and and there are some instances like this where unless you've ever experienced it's really hard to explain it just it, it can sink a ship, it can sink the Titanic, it feels so great. Uh, and Cara said to me that, you know, it's, people can live with grief, but it's the, it's the guilt and that sense of responsibility which can really drag you down. And certainly for the first few months of this year, uh, that's how it felt for me. What did your wife say to you? Well, I was just, um, I was on autopilot for a bit. And like I say, you, you know, you come from a position where you're getting up every day and you want to change the world and it's really how we get out of bed. And I wasn't in anywhere near that. I, I don't know if I was even in survival mode. I was just you know, get up, get the kids to school, do what I need to do and then pick them up and go home. But we went to the Gold Coast over the school holidays. It, must, it was the Easter school holidays. And we got back and Carl said, you can't, we can't keep doing this. Uh, you need to do something. Um, you, you can't live your life like this. We can't live like this as a family. And I was, I just wasn't in a good place during that trip. And um, I, I just popped in my head that uh, I, I wanted to challenge myself physically and mentally. We're having this discussion. I said, I'm going to go and do Everest Base Camp. <laughs> I'd never had any aspiration to doing it. I don't even know where it came up. Gosh, like it's one thing to think I'm going to go and climb the mountain that's, you know, an hour away from my home or go camping, but Everest Base Camp. Yeah, I, I guess I wanted the biggest challenge I could think of. And um, 
Are and you a mountain climber? No, look, and I hadn't. I, I did a <laughs> in the in the five days lead up that I'd given myself from the time I said it and the time I was jumping on the plane. I took the dog for a walk up Balmoral Hill a couple of times, but. <laughs> No, no this is, fitness. This is your and, trading. Five days. You're telling me you booked it, and five days later you were on a plane. So I said at Easter <laughs> Thursday or Friday. I think I went down. To, well, you know, there's the public holidays, but anyway, I think I paid for it on the Saturday, and I was probably on the plane on the Wednesday or Thursday out. And was she thinking this wasn't what I had in mind, beloved husband? It was. <laughs> she said, "She's like, she's typical you. You always have to go to biggest." She's like, "I was thinking Tasmania for four days." I'm like, bit late now. I've booked it. <laughs> Paid. So very quickly you find yourself in the Himalayas. What was it to be in that extraordinary environment? What impression? It is magical up there. It, you know, the mountains, it's like they're their own gods, their own spirits. They've all got their own identity. And the, the people, you know, they've been doing their thing for probably thousands of years. There's no motors up there, right? There's no cars or anything. You're all on foot. It's like something I've never experienced, the beauty of it. Uh, I remember flying into Nepal or Kathmandu and our plane must have went past one of the peaks and I look out and I just see we're on level with these peaks. I remember looking out the plane window and just going, wow, and also what have I got myself into? (laughs) And about two minutes later my my Apple Watch starts beeping saying your heart rate's risen. I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, welcome to this. Get used to that for the next few weeks. So I had those those couple of dog walks up Balmoral Hill prepared you for trekking in the Himalayas? Uh, probably not as good as it should have been, but it's more of a mental challenge than a physical. And to tell you the truth, I was there to beat myself up, Sarah. I, if I wanted to go and sit at a resort and, um, you know, drink mocktails on next to the pool, then I could do that. But I wanted to punish myself. I wanted to make myself feel something. I wanted to hurt. Uh, and that's that's what I was there for. That's what I did physically and, and mentally. And then did that bring its own kind of release, pushing yourself, punishing yourself that way? Look, it did. And I remember making it to base camp. And I, before I left, I, I didn't know what, I didn't do any research, right? So I didn't know what was at base camp, but I thought that oh, there's going to be something to signify base camp. I threw the Aboriginal flag in my bag and I was like, when I get to base camp, I'm going to hold this flag up, you know, and get a photo around whatever it was. And just turns out there's this 10, 15 tonne rock there was, you know, base camp sprayed on it. But I get this photo and I didn't realise how emotional it would be getting there. And, you know, I was there for my brother, right? I was there for my loss, for what I've gone through. It wasn't, wasn't anything else. I was there to try and overcome, um, you know, the emotions I'd had over the first four or five months of the year. And I get there and I, um, I, I get my photo and then I just sit down next to the rock and I start crying. And I watch all everyone else lining up and getting their photos, but I'm like, that's it. All I wanted to do was to get there. And to achieve that and, you know, hopefully it, it, it shifted where I was from. I needed a, I was in such a bad place, I needed a seismic shift and that was the biggest thing I could get and it did give me that. How has the trip stayed with you in the months since you've come back? I've, look, I've, it's a bit of a U-turn, I guess, from where I was. I'm not, I'm not back to where I probably would have been, but I came back and I said to Car, and Car was sort of stuck in the mode where, where I was before I left. And I said, look, babe, I've changed. I, I'm not going to put the family through that. I'll put myself through that and come back and be the same. I'm turning things around and I have. I've you know, emotionally turned things around. I've 
been back into work a lot better. Um, I've just been there, you know, more present as a father. And look, don't get me wrong, I'm still having my challenges and I don't want anyone to think that, you know, this is going to be a short journey, but it put me onto a very different path as to where I was heading prior to it. Are there more mountains you want to climb? Is that where did your appetite for more of that sort of adventure? It did. And I, um, actually going back in March and it, what, what is the good thing is I, I said to my friends, oh, I'm going, I'm going in four days if you want to come. But obviously none of them could come, although one came very close. So for the ones who said they put up their hand, all right, well, I'm going to go back in March. And I want to do that with a group of friends, have that experience. Hopefully there's a couple of us that'll, um, will come along, but yeah, it really gave me just a, uh, an emotional high and intensity and and I'm a person who likes challenges you know I I've um I've had so many in my life and I got to challenges often keep me motivated so to go and do that again with a, a group group of friends and to achieve that challenge something monumental will be really special Josh thank you so much for sharing your story. I think you do deserve a few mocktails by the pool as well though. <laughs> well the weather's starting to warm up so hopefully I can get a few soon. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. If you need to talk with someone, remember that Lifeline is always there. You can phone them on 13 11 14. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.